I just hunted those investors down. I did not know how to approach them, but I, I was just on top of it. I just, it just needed to happen. So I was just, you know, yeah, hunting them down. Starting a company, well, that's easy. You set up some desk, gather a few friends, order a few boxes of pizza, and you're in business. Selling your company, that's a whole different story. Finding the right buyers, agreeing on the terms and conditions, and setting a fair price. In the big exit show by Peak Capital, we lift the curtain of secrecy of selling ambitious scale-ups by talking to successful technology founders who have been in this roller coaster. My name is Remy Gieling. And my name is Johan Vermeil. And in this episode, we talk to Eline Vrijland van Beest. Eline sold her company Night Balance in 2018 to healthcare giant Philips for an undisclosed amount of money and has been a tech investor herself ever since. In the next 40 minutes, you will get to know her insights on exiting the company, her latest endeavors in the path, how she got there. Eline, so good to have you with us today. Thank you so much. So, Eline, what's the what's a heroic story of Night Balance? Uh, the heroic story is about a young student who had a mission inspired by her father. And um, uh, I had a... a teacher who wouldn't who would not want me to work on that program I convinced him um, I had a couple of uh, uh, setbacks and then was able to graduate on that mm -hmm. I then spun out with a with the project it was a medical device for the treatment of sleep apnea um, I spun out and um, uh, raised a company so that's this was night bounce um, raised my first investment round one and a half years later mm -hmm. Uh, did a lot of clinical research, over 80,000 nights in clinical research wow. to prove that the therapy was working for uh, apnea patients. And uh, then the company was acquired by Philips in uh, 2018. And, and that's, so that was a hero. So what's, what's the actual story? <laughs> yeah, I already started a little bit of the actual stories is um, a lot of setbacks. So I always say I had a reason to quit every single day. And this started with my teacher who didn't believe in the project and he wouldn't let me graduate on it. Um, but it was also the first investors who really didn't believe in the story I had. I mean, I was a very young and inexperienced student and I'd never done a medical device. So why would you believe something like that? I had so many feedback from people saying that the product wasn't right. Um, there's two days ago, I spoke to somebody who did research on my project and now is ashamed how, how ruthlessly he, he completely um, yeah, destroyed my project because of his research outcomes. Um, I couldn't remember that, but I had so many people who were negative about it. Um, but not only that, I mean, after the first investment, uh, our, our clinical first clinical trial that we did was a misery by design. So, but we didn't know how to design a clinical trial. So we were including completely the wrong patients. So we would never get good outcomes. Um, I hired the wrong people. I was a poor manager. I did not know how to manage people. So I'd had great people that finally came. They left again because I was, I was a poor manager to them. Uh, I had to learn everything from scratch. The startup phase. So, Elina, can you explain to the listeners what Night Balance was? So it was a small sensor that um, treats um, 
positional sleep apnea. So uh, sleep apnea stops of breath during your sleep, and this um, normally occurs when you, when you lay on your back. Your tongue falls in your throat and it collapses. So it really yeah, blocks your throat from, uh, from breathing. Um, so what we did, we had this small sensor, you wear it above your stomach under your chest, and it continuously measures your sleeping position. And um, what we tried to do is train people to sleep on their sides, because on the side, the tongue doesn't block the, the airway, um, and um, uh, the airway stays free. So for over 50% of all apnea patients, this was a solution. Instead of wearing um, positive airway pressure masks or mandibular advancement devices, which are braces keeping your lower jaw up front. So that was the therapy that, that I developed at the university. Um, and it was a new to the world therapy, so it was not done before. So we really had to clinically prove the effectiveness of the device compared to the golden standard. So this was these breathing machines uh, to prove that it was at least as effective and that patients um, would use it the entire night and would be compliant to the therapy. Now, I read somewhere that before you started Night Balance, uh, you, you were still in university, of course, um, that you had this dream to become a, um, a business consultant. Why <laughs> in heaven's earth <laughs> did you ever thought that was a good idea? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I loved uh, challenges. I loved steep learning curves. So I really wanted to learn fast and, and a lot. And I loved changing uh, environments. Um, and I loved, you know, the intellectual um, uh challenge that I got in that. So this was an environment that really fit me. The challenge, the, the pace of work, um, the, the learning from people around you. Um, but then I had this, you know, this mission to bring this new device to patients. And when I'd, when I'd worked on it, it was an idea of my father's. And uh, I, I developed the product. And then, and then I realized, okay, but now I developed the product. His patients are not going to be helped by this because somebody needs to produce it. Somebody needs to clinically prove it. Somebody needs to, who's that somebody gonna be? So initially I thought I need to find a company who starts doing this and obviously that company can't be found. So then I figured, okay, you know what? I'll make a business plan for my father so that he can start doing that. And as I made the business plan, I realized, okay, he's not gonna do it, he's a doctor. Um, okay, so maybe I should do it. So that's really how I sort of rolled into it and then figured, okay, I'm gonna give myself one year. <laughs> Only one year. <laughs> <laughs> How naive. I mean, seriously. Um, and from that, I just, you know, I, that that's how it all started. Yeah. Hey, and it started with a tennis ball in the back of a pajamas, right? Correct. How many pivots did you do until the product, which was eventually bought by, by Philips? How many pivots in terms of product, but also in terms of market, etc.? The product did not change that much. So we did, so the, the concept was the concept of positional therapy was proven with a tennis ball. So that just kept people from sleeping on their backs. Mm -hmm. But everybody was complaining about back pain in the morning and people were sleeping on top of the tennis ball. And um, the interesting part was as well, at the beginning it would keep people from sleeping on the back, but people would train themselves to sleep on top of it. It's like living next to a train station. At a certain point in time, you don't hear the trains anymore. That's what happens to something that is passive during the night and, and you actually train yourself not to respond to it. Mm -hmm. So we knew it had to be something active, um, but we worked with, we started with RFID tags and beds that would inflate, partially rolling you to the side, pillowcases that would inflate. I mean, there was thousands of ideas that we literally tested. We made mock-ups, we tested with people and 
pretty soon we came to the idea um, of a sensor that was worn on the on the chest. Um, uh, we did research with Taino to understand which areas of the body were most sensitive to to feedback during sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, so the concept was actually there quite soon. But the market, however, mm-hmm. so we started off with back patients. Mm-hmm. And um, talking to, to doctors, I found that a lot of the doctors did not see the correlation between wrong sleeping positions and back pain, which was my dad's original... Mm-hmm you know, area. So then I figured, okay, so first I need to sell the problem before I can start selling the, the answer to it. So, um, and then during these presentations that I was giving, loads of people came up with other ideas. What about sleepwalking? What about snoring? What about sleep apnea? What about a bed, you know, people that walk during their, um, uh, or I really said sleepwalking. Um, so there were so many different um, sudden infant death syndrome. Mm-hmm. Another thing was mm-hmm. so baby sleeping on their stomach. So there were loads of different areas that we could go in, directions that we could go into. Um, so I started doing research and I, I basically talked to loads of different people to understand where the need was highest. And mm-hmm. um, with apnea doctors, lung physicians, ENT specialists, they just said, okay, if you have a different solution here, that's the golden egg because there's so many patients in compliant to current therapies. Mm-hmm. Um, we really need something here. And that was really like they were dragging it out of my hands. Can I test it? Can I test it with my patients? I, I love this idea. Can we do something with it? So it was really pulling us. And then I understood, okay, that's the place where we where we have to be. Now in the first year, you entered a lot of startup competitions and you won like a hundred grand with all these with all these pitches you did and you won. So people were very enthusiastic about your your concept and your ID. Uh, but preparing for those pitches and entering and 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 giving your talks takes a lot of time as well. Would you advise fellow startup entrepreneurs to to enter in these kinds of competitions? Depending on your experience. So for me, that was fantastic because I learned to present. So you have to know about me that I was a horrible presenter when I started. I was so afraid of being on stage. I literally had to memorize every single sentence I said. And, and I'd, I, had, I had put in my brain, I would take steps on the stage that I was at. And every step would be a different cue for a different part of my story because I just had to memorize it. It was so nerve-wracking. So... The night before I had to do a presentation, I would not sleep just because of my nerves. So, I, And I'm happy I did that because I had to go through it not knowing that how many presentations I was going to give you know, in my life. So I'm happy I went through that. And now it feels like I'm talking to somebody. Like, you always know what to say. Um, and that's the same being on stage. But you have to go through that. So I really am very grateful that I did that. The second thing is I got loads of really good feedback. So I had people shooting holes in my plans. And these were all judges, these juries, they're all experienced entrepreneurs or investors. And the holes that they see, that's what the market is going to see and that's what your investors are going to see. So I took that as feedback and I found that being really helpful on, on my plans. So now, however, that I've gone through it, it does cost a lot of time and energy. Um, I'm not nervous for presenting anymore. And I have my people around me that provide me with the feedback. So I still look for the active feedback with investors, with advisors. I get loads of people around me. Um, but I would not go into that competition uh, field again, because it just, just, just because of the time. And, and I want to be as efficient as I can. Before the growth is one, one question. There's a lot of uh, talking, and I think a very good talking, on diverse these days, these days, right? What's your personal experience as a founder 
of a company also in a medical environment, a pretty, I think, wi white male-dominated environment, right? What's your experience also with that? And what, what kind of suggestions do you have uh, for, for listeners? So, um, <laughs> yes, it, it was extremely white male-dominated, and it has a pro and a con. So on the pro side, I've, I've always been the excuse-trush. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll find um, an English, we'll find an English for word for that. <laughs> but um, So I've been put on stage... Um, for example, on the exit of Philips, I've been put on stage with the CEO of and founder of Galapagos, at that time worth 15 billion or something, mm -hmm. I don't know, and Edwin Moses, who from the CEO from Applings, another billion dollar company, and then me. So mm -hmm. that was so obviously, we don't have a lady in this position, so mm -hmm. we'll look for the, <laughs> the cool somebody who comes new, closest. New, new, new the, on new, the, block. the new kid on the block, exactly. So, uh, but on the, so, that's the positive of that is I get a lot of opportunities. Mm -hmm. I get a lot of chances. Uh, I'm I'm easily in the picture, um, uh, but that only helps you so little mm -hmm. because in the boardroom, um, uh, in your management team, um, talking to doctors, um, the unconscious bias is just yeah, it, undescribable. Mm -hmm. And and even people who tell me that. So people in my own team who say that they're absolutely, mm. I mean, they think it's ridiculous and et cetera. But then I, I'd, I'd give them a, a, a little joke. You know, the, you know these, these, these quizzes that you do. So there's um, a dad sitting with his son in the car and going for a job offer. And uh, they're driving really fast because he's late and yada, yada, yada. And uh, then all of a sudden the CEO of the company, the billion-dollar company, calls in saying, good luck with your job offer. And um, how can that be? And everybody's like, it's it's um, his his grandfather. No, no, no. Um, it, so the dad's also the driver. Um, but nobody thinks that it could be his mom, you know. So so it's those cues. And I could I could do yeah. this. I could ask this question, and nobody thinks of it. Yeah. And that's so fascinating. Um, where where we're eyes wide open, just stepping into it. Yeah. And it's really hard being a female mm. to explain that. Mm. Because everybody say, oh, yeah, you just say that because you're female. But it's really, it's really there. Let's turn to the growth phase <clears throat> because we want to have loads of time to talk about the exit as well. And uh, uh, from P Capital as a SaaS and a software investor, I know that raising money with hardware is really, really hard. That's why it's hardware, right? And not software. <laughs> Well, how did you convince the investors to step in? What was the the, the, the big dream that you sold? But how did it, how, how did you convince them? So um, I did not know this when I started, but the market for sleep apnea is very big. So mm -hmm. there is a the, it's a three four billion dollar market annually, um, and there's only two solutions out there. There is CPAP positive area pressure, and there's mandibular advancement devices, for which the compliance was quite low. So fifty to sixty percent. So meaning that you know, of this billion dollar market, half of the patients are not happy. They're not using their device. So there is so obviously clearly space mm -hmm. for another solution. Um, and of course I got loads of feedback and uh, people saying you can do this in your phone or, but for, um, for, for a disease, you're not gonna use an app. 
Mm-hmm. So if you are seriously ill, you want a serious treatment. And um, uh, investors in the medical space understand that, uh, doctors understand that, and patients who actually live their disease understand that. Mm-hmm. And um, so the good thing was we had strong IP. Um, the market was obviously there. Um, we could show, even though our cl- first clinical trials were poorly set up, we could really show the efficacy. And then that just becomes execution. So you then the question becomes, are you able to yeah, make your, yeah, do your clinical trials right, get the right people in place, um, mm-hmm. um, roll this out? And that was my story with the three times being rejected for the re- insurance companies. It wasn't a question whether it was going to happen. The question was just when, because the efficacy was clearly there. The patients were there. The doctor, every single doctor in the Netherlands had already prescribed the device, but patients were paying for it themselves. So, um, and that was that made it quite easy to to convince investors. In Indeed, that because sense. Pay, yeah. people are paying for it themselves, right? Exactly. So then you really solve the pain. Yeah. yeah. You, uh, what was it like to start raising money? Because you were a first-time entrepreneur, so it, 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 it must be kind of daunting, all the things that, that, that you have to, to, to deal with, I guess. I, I, just, uh, I just hunted those investors down. I did not know how to approach them, but I just hunted them down. And every single... How, how, how did you do that? So, but what I did every single time is I created this Excel sheet with this list of investors that I'd met. And um, in the process, I would always look for the positive and the good news. If it wasn't there, I would make it. So I would create, I, I'd invite patients to come out and we'd make a video and they would share their experience. And I would send that video to investors. Two weeks later, I'd, I'd start a new trial in a new hospital and I'd interview the doctor and take a picture and we would send that we would hire a new person or or any news that i had i really try to frame it and make it like make them feel that we were on it it was happening it was a sport to me to to respond within minutes to investors and any slight question that i got i would completely over the top give them a powerpoint presentation or whatever uh, a document that would completely wipe out the question. So I was just on top of everything and I was continuously emailing everybody. If I had a question from one investor, by the way, I would also send the answer to the rest yeah, of the investors. Yeah, distribute it to the rest. That's a very yeah. good that's So a very that good trick. they would know, oh, there's other people asking questions. And not only in Dutch, but also in international, right? So yes, that's international appetite, right? Of course, right? yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and the same for the data room. I would, you know, the data room would have, you know, sections that somebody never asked for because they understand that the data room is you know visited by other investors too so those are those are things that I did and I was just on top of it I just it just needed to happen so mm-hmm. I was just you know yeah hunting them down as a founder you, you said somewhere that you always liked to get an evaluation from the investor first to see what they thought the company was was worth and then you started modeling uh, what you thought it was worth these days, you are also an investor yourselves. Do you what? What do you prefer now? Yeah. So, so the reason for that, by the way, so the first round I was raising, I, I was looking for four hundred thousand, and um, the first offer that I got, I remember, was seventy nine percent of my shares or something <laughs> for, <laughs> for for four of the those four hundred k. But hey, it was an offer. So the first thing I did is go to all the other investors saying, I have an offer. I have two weeks. 
um, if you if you want to make a counter offer, um, send it to me. So so um, so the hor- the offer obviously was horrible. But then um, for the same 400, I have I got a way lower percentage from a different investor, and I was negotiating with them, and they would not lower that percentage. And I just figured, okay, um, if you're not going to lower the percentage, uh, and that was a clear cut to them because they were early stage investors and they just wanted a certain share, uh, then we have to hire them out. So we finally raised over a million in that round for that same percentage. So we negotiated the different, the other direction. And that's how I really found out that it, it sometimes is just the ticket size of an investor or it's, it's about the rules that they internally have on the, on the stake that they take. Um, so it comes so precise and, and it's, you can't see that on the outside from an investor, right? So um, I still like that approach. Uh, being on the other side, I'm often scared off by uh, valuations that startups have mm-hmm. and the, the 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 image that they have of themselves. Um, even so, that I think, okay, I'm not even going to start this discussion because it's always a, a nasty discussion to have with founders that have a certain picture in their mind, and you have to tell them, well, a tenth of that, maybe, you know. So then it's it's just yeah, and and then you just. But think, then they open up with a the valuation themselves. Apparently. Yes. So that's why I'm saying being on the investor yeah. side now, um, I still think that um, the from from my side personally, um, it's a it's a more convenient way to have the investor do an offer. Yeah. Would you be an advice for founders maybe? So so to to ask proactively well, unle- for unless you you know that you're realistic, right? Yeah. So and and um, you're realistic when when you've spoken to a lot of investors and you have some experience in the field. Yeah. Until that time, you hear cowboy stories because everybody tells the cowboy stories or the the beautiful stories on the outside, and you think, hey, well, that sounds like something in my ballpark. Let's do this, right? Mm-hmm. And and you can't if yeah. you can't support. We can always round. We can always round down in negotiations. Can always go, yeah, yeah and, and and we want to show that we're bold and and beautiful and and we have a vision, etc. But um, it also scares in in my case, and this is maybe the medtech space specifically. That might no, that might be. No, it's also the SaaS tech and the marketplace. Uh, so yeah, yeah. I fully agree with you on that part. Yeah. Yeah, but the, yeah, and and maybe it's style. I'm, I tend to be more on the humble side than than you. Yeah, know, but I think also in terms of valuation, you can raise you know a very large amount or a very chunk, uh, big chunk of money, right? But I think if if you are you as a company ready for that, right? Because otherwise you will have a big valuation now, but then you run into the problem later that the next investor will not join, right? So yeah. I think it's very good to to raise some decent money indeed, but have a very good plan and a very t- good solidation, very foundation for that really to go for The exit phase. You had a plan also to IPO your company, right? That was one of the options that you had when you were selling your company indeed to Philips, but also you were thinking also and raising around, etc. So you had different options on the table for yourself, what you could do. How, how did you make that choice? Where to go for? We did have discussions about an IPO. Um, uh, and at that time, I don't think, I don't think the window was really there for us, but we were talking about it and we were looking at it as an alternative. One of my competitors, I would say with, with, um, with a not a superior product, uh, it's still dysfunctional, and um, they don't have a lot of. No, seriously, they, they the clinical trials are, are are not that good. But they went IPO, and uh, <laughs> and they're over 500 million uh, on their launch, 
in in the market. And then I, I really felt, okay, well, maybe we've made the wrong decision there. But <laughs> um, so uh, it was an option. Uh, we did talk to banks, um, but the offer from Philips already was on the table. Um, and um, the negotiations were, were, were going on and, and everybody was getting quite excited. So mm-hmm. that point we figured... And we made a decision to pull through and, and go for the exit. Um, what was your personal reason to sell the company eventually? So I knew we I had to sell it uh, when I started it. When I took the first money, I knew I had to sell it. So um, uh, And my mission had always been to bring the product to the patient. Um, and it made so much sense that Philips, who has thousands of people on the street visiting all these doctors. They were already doing over a billion in sales in, in sleep apnea market. It made so much sense to use all of that instead of building all of that myself. Um, and, and my mission was to bring it to the patient. So that was the fastest route to it. So that was an, that made it very easy for me to, to let go of that. Yeah. And how did the process went? How did the process, did, did, did you hire external expertise? Did you, did you do fully yourself, the help of the, of the VCs involved? Um, yeah, so I, my, my VCs definitely helped me out mm-hmm. a lot. Um, and I, I, I think, though, they, in the beginning, they left a lot to me as a mm-hmm. CEO. And I also, also got the message saying, mm-hmm. okay, if, if we're on your side, then they won't, um, you won't be trusted or seen as a good CEO if you need help from your investors. But now on the other side, I think that's dumb because investors do this every single week, every single month, they're experienced in this. Mm-hmm. As a CEO, you do this once, maybe twice in your life. Mm-hmm. So Reason <laughs> it doesn't, for this podcast. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't, so it really doesn't ma- not make sense to, to do that on your own. So um, uh, I'm very happy that my investors and, and especially the, um, uh, the chairman of my board, he was dubbed the chief exit officer because he'd done so many exits in his life before. Um, so he really helped me with the uh, with the negotiations and the CFO. So we did the three of us were there and uh, you didn't hire any other external help. No. So so typically you could look for a lot of different companies that could that could acquire you. In our case, uh, I'd spoken to Philips two years earlier. Mm-hmm. They were already interested. Um, so you have to know this. At these conferences, mm-hmm. where they where all the industry comes together, yeah. we always looked for a literally a space that was opposite of Philips mm-hmm. or opposite of Resmed. So those are the two big players yeah, in the field. Yeah. So they'd see me grow every single year, seeing more doctors coming by, and we got bigger to know. Hmm? <laughs> bigger stand, bigger stand, yeah, bigger stand. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. but the, the 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 leadership teams are there at these mm-hmm. conferences because they the entire industry comes together. So they knew us for years. Mm-hmm. So when I I mentioned I was doing a fundraise, um, uh, they said shouldn't we be talking? Um, so we did talk, and they moved very slowly. So I said okay, you have to do something, otherwise I'm going to do a, a 10 million round. I don't think they believed me, um, and they were still taking their time. So I decided, okay, we'll have to do the uh, the, um, the round with Hilda and uh, Inkef. Mm-hmm. It became a 12.5 million round, and uh, we closed it, and then Philips was okay. Next time round, when I mentioned we're going to do a bigger round, um, we're going to be focusing on, on closing next year. If you're interest, interested in talking, the time's now. Mm-hmm. And that that's the moment <laughs> when they speeded up their process, and... Um, they came with an offer quite soon, uh, and we obviously knew their biggest competitor as well. So we literally had the same presentations in the same week mm. for them and their biggest competitor. Oh wow! Really? So really lining that uh, lining that up. Uh, I was. 
pregnant, by the way. Um, so I flew up and down until I, could, I was not allowed to fly anymore. So, um, and then did everything what's now normal, but we did the rest was digital um, so that I could work from home uh, basically and do the last negotiations. So we didn't, we didn't need anybody else because there's two huge players in this field. So those were very clear exit. Also hard for your investors, right? If there are only two potential buyers of the company, right? To step in at such a late time and then sell so early, right? After their investments to a company. How did you convince them? I can imagine, right, looking also at the IPO that your competitor made, right, that they are willing to say, yeah, but you know, that was not that was not that clear at the time. So, okay. and so there was one company that went IPO and they did really well. This was Nervoglossus Stimulation Inspire, they're called, and so that was completely different technology and a very expensive treatment. But they they did a huge IPO and and um, did really well. But that was post our um, post our acquisition. So I don't think the space. And the interest in this space was as clear as it is today at that mm-hmm. uh, at that time. Yeah. So so and I think um, the the offer that we got was interesting. Um, uh, I think everybody felt the momentum. Um, mm-hmm. I'd been working on it for ten years, nine yeah, years. Yeah, it's also a moment, right? Personally, also that you exactly. Uh, I just had my second child. I'd you know given my life ten or like a third of my life um, <laughs> <laughs> for that, and so for me it felt right as well. And. Yeah. Um, they did ask if I was open for the uh, for an IPO, and that would mean a lot on my shoulders. Um, as I said, it made much more sense to uh, to use the and leverage the work that Phillips had already done than to do everything to build everything ourselves. Yeah, so, I, think, uh, I think it's really important, right? If a CEO, I think if you as a CEO as a founder believe this is the right moment, right? That you should indeed yes. be able to convince your investors and other stakeholders, right, to do that. And the yeah. steps that we had to take were really commercial. So yeah. we developed the product, we brought it to market, we got FDA approval, um, we did pivotal clinical trials, we got reimbursement coding, and now is really the commercial rollout. And that is exactly what, you know, if you do an acquisition or you, uh, somebody else would acquire you, that's the first thing that they would let go. So mm-hmm. it really, it really did, yeah, to mm-hmm. me it didn't make sense in, mm-hmm. in that way. The process that 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 comes next was quite invasive, right? With the whole due diligence team, I heard they flew over from Pittsburgh, go through every single file, and and the, and and the team was not allowed to know it. So we ha- we had rented. Uh, so there was a big spaces building, just a couple of buildings next to us, and the entire team because it, it Phillips is. Um, uh, is on the stock exchange. Nobody was allowed to know about the acquisition, so just my my management team knew about it. And um, so the entire team was just in the office working every day, and we would leave for meetings, right? Mm-hmm. And um, did they did they figure out at one point there might be something going no, on? No, no, I was out because I was with pregnancy leave, um, and uh, and the management team was out for these meetings. So, but it was. Interesting because we had these <laughs> tables and there would be ten people on the other side and then one or two from our side, you know, answering all the questions that they were firing at us. Um, it was very intense, but I think we were well prepared um, and and um, the data room was quite fresh because it filled it two years earlier. Um, and uh, we added the la- latest documentation to that, and then they they're obviously digging through every single detail of it. I was I remember being really proud of my team because uh, I had a really strong uh, management team and and they were they were really able in much more depth than 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 they obviously were able to um, uh, answer any question that was was uh, was asked to them. So I think they were quite impressed and 
I was at least I was really proud of them <laughs> when I saw them uh, mm. do their thing. Yeah. Who, who did the, who did the negotiation at that time? Because one, it's indeed also you know the valuation, but also it's other terms like that it can be an earnout. People want you to stay, etc. Who did the final? So we we did everything with the three of us. So my CFO, myself, and the the chairman of the board. Always, all with all talks, with you all the, three, the three of us were physically there for for every negotiation. And then we would, you know, if there were things that we would not deal at the same time, we would go back to the inv entire investment board, entire board basically, to talk about what our position was on um, on specific elements that they'd suggested. And you had a mandate of the board probably, right? To say you can go between this and this, et cetera, regarding this. No, no, because we would we would agree everything with the entire board. And okay. I mean, it's not like you negotiate and then you get a mandate. Um, what were some non-negotiables for you personally? Did I have uh, non-negotiables? So I did not want. Uh, so they had they had quite a big earnout that they thought of in the beginning. But um, I I'd heard so many bad stories about that that I wanted the, <laughs> that part to be as small as Recently, possible. Yeah, yeah. Um, That's very wise. So um, and now I would even say don't no earnout at all because it just um, screw the earnout. It's well. It's, it's a new title for the next podcast. Yeah. Screw the earnout. Well, it's people. hard because often it's um, uh, so we did have earnouts that were managed by us, and those are the good ones because you can do it yourself, yeah. right? Mm. But then there's also earnouts that are, have to be performed by the exit party, and then you have nothing to say about it, and then the energy becomes uh, negative. And so that second part earnout thing, I would not do again. But the first part, if you believe in yourself, I mean. Yeah, but you, you, your role changes also, right? As a founder, you become uh, less involved. There's a lot of structure. So you're working together with a new parent company, sorry, the buying company in this case, right? So you don't have a lot of influence on the fi uh, final outcome, right? So, Correct, yeah. yeah. Ta yeah. Take, us yeah. To the, take us to the moment that you told your team <laughs> that you were selling the company. Yeah, so that was... Because um, they didn't know, right? Because you were know. in pregnancy leave, you're the rest of your team. So, so um, we'd, we'd set up a meeting um, with the entire team, like we did every single month. Um, but that morning we signed in Amsterdam. Um, we signed, we did the signing and we, we had the closing. And then we drove directly to Delft, where the entire team was waiting for us. And we obviously came with the Philips people. Mm -hmm. And we had a presentation that we prepared saying, congratulations, uh, balloons, um, <laughs> the entire thing. And then, uh, yeah, so the entire team was there. And there was a straight after that followed a program, an integration program that was done very nicely by Philips. They had a team on top of that that had done this before. Mm. They knew how to, um, yeah, how to, they had an integration plan and, and really led us through that. So, um, um, but uh, yeah, people felt that something was going on, but they really had no idea. That how how, how did they respond? Because I personally had one time when I was telling to the staff that I sold the company and they were all completely depressed. And I had <laughs> other moment and they all jumped on the table, right? And I think so the message was more or less the same. <laughs> <laughs> so I think uh, I did. I, I think they did not really know what to expect from it. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, um, they did not know whether to be happy or not to, or to be sad about it. So there obviously, there was a big stock option pool available. We did have a stock a stock option pool. Uh, we definitely did have that. Um, but people also felt their jobs, right? And um, mm. especially because the um, the uh, part of Philips that did the acquisition was based in Pittsburgh. Mm. 
So how would that, you know, um, but everybody got... We're the, all moving. Yeah, so, so you were allowed to if you wanted to, but most people obviously wanted to stay in the Netherlands. So then then you have to look for a new job within Philips in either Amsterdam or, or in, in Eindhoven. And that obviously creates a lot of insecurity. So yeah. I think it were mixed feelings because of that. Yeah. What was the best advice that you got during that process of selling your company? Because you did it for the first time, right? You had some mm. experience help from your from your board, uh, chairman of the board. But what was the best advice you got from another guy or girl or uh, relative or people you know in your surroundings? So I think uh, not people in my surroundings. I, d I was not sharing a lot with okay. anybody at all, mm -hmm. uh, to be honest. Uh, but uh, I was quite afraid. That, I mean, the, all these legal obligations and, and stuff that is putting your shoulders and... and um, But I, I remember that my, the chairman of my board mentioned, okay, I've signed these things like six or seven times and, and it looks really harsh, but this is how it actually works out. And I would not worry about this. Whereas mm -hmm. if I would read the legals, I'd like be really afraid of, of yeah, what was there. Um, and that really comforted me. I can remember that that really softened me up and I figured, okay, they, they don't have bad intentions here. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's not the case. Yeah. I mean, and, And uh, I think that really helped me, uh, that helped me. But other advice? Mm. What did you got for yourself? Most entrepreneurs give themselves a small present. <laughs> or, a token, or a big present. Or a big present. <laughs> so this huge yacht you bought now. <laughs> no, so um, I was still driving my uh, Toyota Yaris I'd had for 20 years. <laughs> um, so I bought, I bought a Tesla. I was really that was really present to me, uh, but then uh, I um, the I think the thing that I really figured I wanted to do is create um, moments. So I I, uh, I went on a four month travel with my family mm. in the U.S. and Hawaii, and um, I really enjoyed that. But I really make it a mission to create special you know do special things with with good friends. So I took one friend's to um, Necker Island to go kite surfing. And mm. um, I'm still challenging my dad to go helicopter skiing with me, but <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't think it's cool to do that with his daughter. He's a chiropractor. No, it's not cool to do that with your daughter, right? So um, I have to think of something else there. So um, yeah, so those type of things. Cool. Last thing, last question. What, what, what other do you have a tip you can share with founders who are now in the process of exiting their company? What's the? Um, yeah, so so I I actually did the exit the same way as I did my fundraising. So mm. I really hunted hunted them down. I, I was in the lead of the process. It was my energy that that pulled everything forward. Uh, it's not that the, the lack of interest on the other side, but it's just, you know, the running business on the yeah. other side that keeps people distracted. And unless it's your energy, it, it's not going to move forward. Uh, so I was, yeah, I was on top of everything. I tried to over uh, overperform on every single question that I got. And I tried to create competition to really make it, um, yeah, to really make it uh, attractive for people yeah, to, to continue. Like, it's like yeah. a sales process, right? It's it really is. It really is. And uh, and it's really your energy. Um, yeah, and I, I, until the last day, I've, I've been quite surprised about that, that, mm. that, that, you know, really pushing and continuing to, to keep the drive there. Last, but definitely not least, the valuation. In May 2018, Night Balance was acquired by Philips for an undisclosed amount. For context, 
Night Balance develops a clinically validated positional therapy device that uses vibrations to alter sleeping positions and help prevent sleep apnea. Let's look at other similar acquisitions of medical device companies to get a feel for what they might have been acquired for. Let's start with German competitor Somatex Medical Technologies. Somatex, for context, manufactures devices for tumor diagnostics. They were acquired by Hologic for 64 million US dollars in 2021. At the time, Somatex had around 40 employees and was expected to generate around 13 million in revenue in 2020. This employee count is in the same range as Night Balance. Night Balance had around 30 employees when they were acquired. If we discount the exit valuation of Somatex linearly with the number of employees of Night Balance, the exit valuation of Night Balance would be around 48 million US dollars or around 39 million euros. Another comparable company that was acquired recently is EndoChoice. EndoChoice was acquired in 2016 for 210 million US dollars, that is, by Boston Scientific. For context, EndoChoice manufactures devices that treat gastrointestinal disease. At the time that EndoChoice was acquired, they had an annual revenue of about 90 million US dollars and 95 employees. Doing that same valuation versus employee discounting as above, we would arrive at an exit valuation for night balance of around 66 million US dollars, or around 54 million euros. The final example we will look at is a US company called Intact Vascular. Intact Vascular was acquired by Philips in 2020. For context, they specialize in implantable devices that treat peripheral artery disease. Intact Vascular was acquired for 275 million US dollars and they had already raised a whopping 150 million US dollars as well. At the time, they had around 70 employees when Philips bought them. Using the employee count discounting as above, Intact Vascular would lead me to calculate Night Balance's exit price to be around 94 million euros. However, this estimation seems to be high considering Night Balance raised a considerably lower amount. Night Balance raised a Series B of around 12.5 million euros, or just under 14 million dollars, led by Incaf Capital and Glide Healthcare Partners. Assuming a 50% dilution in this round, the investment would likely have an exit valuation of 25 million euros. Combining the above calculations, I would estimate an exit valuation of around 40 to 50 million euros for Night Balance. This would mean a good return, around 2x for the investors within two years, assuming, once again, a dilution of 50% during the investment round of 2016. I love to hear the story. It was really a good story. Um, um, and I, I can't comment on it, I'm sorry. Um, but I really like your story. Elina, thank you so much for your time and insights today. And thank you so much for listening to the big exit show brought to you by P Capital. If you want to learn from the best tech investors and how they exited their companies, please subscribe through your favorite podcast channel. And I hope to see you soon at the next episode.